As you can tell, our theme is thirst, and we've been taking all of our lessons out of the book of Psalms. Now, I'm going to begin with a little, little bit of an audience participation, if you don't mind. So I, I want to prepare you. I know it's awkward sometimes to speak in, in front of other people, but I'm giving you a little prep time. I'm going to ask you a question, then I'm going to talk for a minute so that you still have time to think about the question. And then I'm just going to want your response. It's just a one-word response. So I just want to get a little audience participation. So the question is this. When you think about uh, society today, just your opinion of our society today, what one word would you use to describe society as you see it today? Now, there's no right or wrong answer here. I'm giving you more time to think through your word. There's no right or wrong answer, and it's just for fun. We're not recording this. It's not going on CNN. Nothing big is going to come out of this. It's just between us. But I'm wondering, what word would you use, what one word would you use to summarize society as you see it today? Yes. Selfie. Okay. Yes. Thirsty. What else? Yes. Lost. Lots of women answering. John. Self. Okay. Masood. Gomorrah. Okay. Yes. Disillusion. We all, one more. Okay. Way in the back. Corruption. All right. So uh, not necessarily the best state of affairs, right, as we think about society. I'm sure some of us may have a better uh, take on it, and that's okay. Like I said, there's no, there's no right or wrong. One thing I want you to know, though, is that God's word does have something to say, no matter what you think of the society today, what you think of the world and going around you, how, how you view it right now, whether positive or negative, God's word does offer you something, and it does offer you a perspective uh, on, on how you view things around you. So turn with me over to Psalm chapter 63, and we're going to read uh, from the Psalms, Psalm 63. It says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God will glory in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Psalm 63, a psalm of David, when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, when we, when we look at the, the psalms, uh, uh, one way to think of the psalms is that they are prayerful words spoken to or about God. They often employ a lot of colorful language and metaphor. And because of that, when we study a psalm, when we read the, the book of psalms, whether we do it here on a Sunday morning, and we're going to do a whole lesson out of this, this one psalm, or whether you're in, on your own reading the Psalms for yourself, it's important to know that you're not supposed to take it all literally. Because of the colorful words, because of the metaphor, what you really want to do is focus on the intent of the words. What's the, what's the general feeling or meaning of the words? Now, there are times in Psalms where the words are meant to be literal. But for the most part, it's just a safe bet to, to, to understand the meaning or the intention of the Psalm rather than trying to nitpick the words. The other thing I want you to know about the Psalms is that they are arranged thematically. The book of Psalms has 150 chapters. 
they are not in chronological order. It's not like chapter 1 is the oldest psalm uh, and, and chapter 150 is the, is the newest psalm. They're not actually in a chronological order. They're actually kind of mishmashed according to theme. They're arranged by theme. Now, there are five books in the book of Psalms. Book 1 starts in Psalms chapter 1 and goes to Psalm chapter 41. Book 2 goes from chapter 42 to chapter 72 and so on. And each of these books correlates to one of the first five books of the Bible. So book 1 of Psalms, chapters 1 through 41, relate to Genesis and the theme of good and evil. Book 2 of Psalms, which begins in 40, chapter 42 and goes to 72, relate to the book of Exodus and, and, and the theme of deliverance. Today, we're going to be looking at Psalm 63, and it is right in the middle of, of, the book, two, of book 2 of the Psalms, and, it, and so it relates thematically to the concept of deliverance. But as you notice at the end here, the Psalm was written by David. David lived many generations after the Exodus. He was... He did not live during that time. Like I said, the Psalms are not chronological. He wrote a Psalm. The Psalm's theme is basically about deliverance. And so the, the editors of the book of Psalms put it in book two because that's the, the theme of book two, deli uh, deliverance. So you can kind of think of Psalms as like a, a book of poems or songs that relate to one of the books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Levit the first five books, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's kind of like a song book for each one of those books. Or, write, or poetry, or, or just neat little poems about themes that are found in each one of those books. Now, specifically, this psalm was written by King David, and it says, when he was in the desert of Judah. So I had to do some research on this. I had to, because when I read the Bible, I, it's hard for me to picture it. I have to, like, see it in my mind, right? So the desert of Judah is not too far from the city of Jerusalem. It's actually a well-known place among Bible people back in the day uh, of like people like Moses and Abraham and the people of Israel, uh, even Jesus, John the Baptist, they all spent time in the desert of Judea. It was basically the area where the Israelites crossed into the promised land. It, you know, when they crossed the Jordan, went into the promised land, for those of you that know a little more Bible history. But it's a, it's a, it's a well-known place. But it's a very inhospitable, it's a very harsh place. There's lots of pictures, I didn't include them on the internet, but it just looks like the moon. I mean, there is nothing there. You think, how can anybody live there? But people do. People have figured out how to survive in the desert of Judah. There are, there are wadis, there are deep canyons, there's places you can go to find water and even, even vegetation, even in the summer months. But you kind of have to know what you're doing. Now, David was, was very familiar with the desert of Judah. When he grew up, he was a shepherd boy, and oftentimes... He took care of the sheep in the desert of Judah. Now, there wasn't a lot going on there. If you think Simi Valley's a sleepy town, the desert of Judah was way more sleepy. There was nothing going on after 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> Probably nothing going on at 6, 7, or even at 12 noon either. There was just nothing much to do there. And, and it was there in David's youth that he developed his relationship with God. And that's just something I want to put out there. It's not necessarily a point, but it's something to think about. In our society today, we are overwhelmed with input, with information, whether it's the TV, the Internet, Twitter, texting, phones, right? We, it's as if we can't go anywhere without some form of attachment to what's going on around us. And as a result, we, we struggle finding quiet time. We struggle finding time for contemplation or just personal alone time. Well, David had the exact opposite problem. He had nothing but time 
contemplate, to consider, to think about things. And it was there that he really developed his relationship with God. Now, this poem, or this psalm, does not come from the time in his youth when he lived basically as a shepherd boy out in the wilderness of Judah. That's not when this psalm was written. Later on in David's life, he became a great warrior. And he was enlisted into the service of a man named King Saul. And he was one of the greatest warriors. He was Saul's greatest warrior. And Saul and David had a bit of a conflicting relationship. Saul was jealous of David, so every now and then Saul would want to kill David. It happens, right? And so David would flee. Guess where he ran to when he was hiding from Saul? The desert of Judea. This psalm doesn't even take place during that time. Later on, Saul passed away. David became king. He's considered the greatest king in Israel's history. He took the 12 tribes of Israel, which were really functioning like independent little cities or states, and he turned them in to a a unified nation. One of the things he did was he found the Ark of the Covenant, the most precious relic of the Jewish faith. It's where God's presence resided. And he returned it, he brought it to Jerusalem, made Jerusalem the capital city of of the nation of Israel, and he wanted to build a big temple for the Ark so that people could come and worship there And and the city of Jerusalem became the political and religious uh, capital of Israel. But God told David, you can't build a a temple for me. I'm I'm fine with the little shack that my my ark is in. That's good enough for now. Your son will take care of building an amazing temple, which he did. King Solomon built an amazing temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Uh, The temple was so amazing. But but when David brought that ark, it it was like the high point of David's leadership because now, for the first time, the people of Israel had a, had a capital city where the, where the political and the religious uh, leaders could, 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 um, could meet and, and they could rally around that city. It was their capital. And they were finally now a legitimate nation. And he made them into a very powerful nation at that time. This is 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, 1,000 B.C. Now, David's life, as awesome as it was, was not without problems. Like many powerful men in his day, he, he had a problem with women. And so he married more than a few wives. Uh, his first seven wives gave him six sons. They don't mention much about the girls back then, except for there was one mention of one girl. So in the first seven wives he had, the first wife never had kids. The other six each had one son. And the third wife, she had a son named Absalom who had a sister named Tamar. And some bad things happened between Tamar... Absalom's sister, and David's first son from a different wife. And as a result, Absalom killed the first son. He killed his half-brother. Really traumatic. To imagine that as a father, you know, your, your kids, whether they're half-brothers or sisters or whatever, but they're fighting to the point of, of doing real harm to one another. That's tragic. So this was going on in David's life all the while that he was trying to put Israel on the map, trying to make them this powerful nation. And so Absalom, one of his sons, was a very troubled kid. Now, Absalom, after that event, many years passed. He basically had to live in exile from his father. But eventually they they reconciled. Absalom sort of came back home and began to undermine King David's leadership. He set himself up as a judge. He began to help the people. And he became a popular hero. People really liked him. In fact, Absalom... The Bible says this of only one other person, that he was better looking than anyone else of his generation. 
he was really good looking, and apparently he was really good with, with people, at least on the surface. He, kept, he would tell them what they want to hear. He would tell them that they were being let down. And, and during this process, he was undermining his own father David's rule. They had problems. There was a dysfunction in their relationship. Absalom got so popular that the people, the popular support, turned to Absalom. So he declared himself king. Now, in those days, which does sometimes still happen today, when someone else became more popular than the current leader, usually a little civil war would break out, right? And that's exactly what happened. David had to flee the city. With all of his, anybody that was loyal to him, a few thousand people were still loyal to him, but David had to flee Jerusalem because Absalom had the popular support. He had an army of many thousands, and he was coming to Jerusalem to dethrone his own father. David had to leave in a hurry. Guess where David went? The desert of Judah. It was a great place to hide out. It was not easy to find people in the desert of Judah. And that's where David went, and that's when he wrote Psalm 63. That's the context. We're going to go through this verse by verse. Let's pray before we do. Father, we ask for your spirit to be with us and, and just intercede in our thoughts and in our hearts and speak to each and every one of us through the words of your servant David through a very troubling time. Help us to be ministered to and see what it is that you want us to see so that we can be better servants of yours. We can be drawn closer to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 1. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. David, the very first thing he says, one of the first things he writes when he's on the lamb, he's running from his own son. And he finds himself there in the familiar area of the desert of Judah where he really grew up learning about God and contemplating God. And there he was away from all the busyness and the craziness of, Ju of Jerusalem and the politics and all that and the trouble that was going on in his life. He finds himself back out there in the solitude of the desert of Judah. And he goes back to some old habits. One was writing and singing to God. And the first thing he says is, God, you are my God. The word for God here is El. It was a, a common word for God in the day. It was just a very general term for, the, for God. And David says, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. I like this word earnestly because in Hebrew, it could also be translated early. And some versions of the Bible actually use the word early. So it would say, you, God, are my God. Early in the morning, I seek you. But it could be also translated earnestly. There's an interesting little point there to be made that when you're earnest for something, you usually get an early start at it. David was early. He was earnest to seek God. It was something that he did early, right off the bat, as, 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 as uh, urgently as he could. That's what was important to him at this point in his life. With everything that was going on, what was important to him was God. I wonder, in our busy days, in our busy lives, myself included, how many of us make God our early appointment? How many of us have, have an urgency, an earnestness to seek God right off the start? You say, well, but i got to get up early for work. I understand. You say, yeah, but I've got kids. I understand. Yeah, but I didn't sleep a lot. I understand. But you're not being chased by your own son who wants to kill you and you're hiding in the desert. David had some pressure too, did he not? He was in trouble too. But for him, it was the first priority of his day. 
earnestly, early, I'm going to seek God. I think there's a challenge for every one of us there. There's a challenge for myself there. It's convicting because, relatively speaking, my life is very comfortable. Yet I don't, I don't necessarily have this kind of earnestness or urgency. But reading David inspires me and encourages me. It, it, it helps me put my priorities back to where they need to be. Regardless of what I think about the world around me, one thing is true. God comes first. And that was David's perspective. He goes on, he says, I thirst for you. Our theme is thirst this month. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. Well, that, that's the desert of Judah for sure. The other thing I noticed is that with everything going on, David's first words were not requests. He wasn't asking for anything. I find that interesting. Because when I'm in trouble, the first thing I start doing is asking God for help. But David didn't turn there. David's first priority was his relationship, his connection to God. He didn't ask for anything. Instead, he prayed, you, God, are my God, earnestly I seek you. He had what I would call a very unique understanding of God. To David, God wasn't impersonal. He wasn't distant. But he was, he was up front, he was up close and involved. And when there was trouble in David's life, he was the first place he turned to. David had a friendship with God. How many of you can say that? How many of you feel that way about God? That you have a, that, that you have a, a, a friendship type of a relationship with him? That you consider him someone that you can turn to, that you can talk to, that you really want to be with. Because when you really think about a friend, it's not so much that they're there for you in times of trouble. That's true. Good friends are. But the thing about a friendship is that you just want to be with them regardless of what's going on. That's how I, I relate to my friends. I just like their company. And that was how David related to God. Even though everything was falling apart around him, his desire wasn't for himself, but it was for his friend, God. How do you get there? How do you develop that kind of a connection to God? Well, I want you to remember this phrase. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. Time well spent. There's no uh, uh, alternative to time well spent. We know from David's life, as we've already talked about, he spent much of his youth alone in the desert with God. How did he get such a unique understanding of God? Time well spent. So what does that mean for you? And I, I, I don't know what it means for you, but I know what it means for me. It means, it means not looking at my phone first thing in the morning. It means not getting on the computer right away. It means carving out time where I can focus and I can contemplate and I can, I can think and communicate with in my mind, in my heart, I can listen to by reading and by contemplating God. Some people do that in the morning. Some people do that in the middle of the day. Some people do that at night. I don't, I don't know that it matters. But the point is, is that there's time well spent. And we're not talking once in a while. That's not a friendship. That's cousins that you don't like. <laughs> so we're talking on a regular basis. Time well spent. There's no, there's no uh, um, alternative to that. Verses 2 through 6. 
I've seen you in the sanctuary, beheld your power and your glory, because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. The singing that's my mouth will praise you. As a result of David's connection to God, his, his friendship, that personal dynamic he had with God, he starts to think back about all the good things that, that he's seen with God. One of them is the sanctuary that he built for God in the city of Jerusalem. That was a big deal. We may not relate to that, but if you could for a minute imagine being in, in the early days of the United States, you know, when, when, the, when the, the White House was first built, right? And when it was finally done, that, that was a big deal. It was like, wow, we, we actually are official now. We have, a, we have a presidential house, right? Or the Congress was finally built, the, the building. We're official now. It was kind of like that for David. It was one of those moments in David's life when he was just like, man, we're official. We've arrived. We've actually done something of significance. We have put a place in a city dedicated to God. We're, 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 we're legit now. He goes on to talk about your love better than life. My lips will glorify you. You know, David, when he was a young man, shepherding sheep out there in the desert of Judea, uh, the Bible tells us that he was often attacked by wild animals, and he had to defend them. Now, I don't know if any of us have ever been alone in a desert and attacked by a wild animal, but I would imagine that we would do a lot of praying. And we would, we would find, like, if we were victorious, that we'd probably think, man, thanks, God, for helping me there, right? David, he's thinking back over, over the things that God did for him throughout his life. Your love is better than life. You're taking care of me is better than anything I can imagine. My lips will glorify you. I praise you as long as I live. In your name, I lift up my hands. That, that, the lifting up of hands is a, is a way to express your inner feelings towards God. It's like, God, I love you. I mean, I'm, I want to give all of myself to you, right? And then I love this line because it relates to food. I will be fully satisfied as with the riches of food. You know, for David, uh, God was like a meal at Ruth's crib, right? A really good, for me, a really good steakhouse, you eat a great meal, you have all the sides, and then you have to sort of sit there for 20 minutes before you can leave, right? I mean, you just, you're just so full and so satisfied, right? That's how David felt about God. He was so satisfied. He was so taken care of by God. What I see David doing here, and, and, and it's, it's not easy, but what I see David doing here is, is he's, he's getting his heart to a point of gratitude. He's just reflecting on what God has done in his life and, and he's thinking about how great it is and how good God is in the midst of being on the run from his own son. And, 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 and hiding out in the desert of Judea, he's finding things to be grateful for. You know, there's an old saying, you know, when, when the tough gets going, when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. I think David would say when the going gets tough, the tough get grateful. And I think that's something we can take home today. That's something we can remember. Gratitude has everything to do with how you view what's going on in the world around you. When I'm not grateful, I am not faithful. 
I don't know what's going on in your life right now. We all have our different challenges. We all have our different struggles. Maybe there's, an, maybe there's nothing serious going on in your life right now. Maybe there's a lot going on in your life right now. Either way, gratitude has everything to do with your attitude, how you view what's happening in your life. David took the time in the midst of everything that was going on to be grateful. Let's go to verses uh, 6 and 7. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night because you're my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. So we get from David, you know, going from, you know, God is, is you know, my friend to, to man, God is it, 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 what I'm grateful for, everything God has done for me, to now David beginning to make decisions. You can almost see him out there in the desert, you know, coming to, to some conclusions about how he should think about what's going on. And in verses uh, 6 through 8, he uses this word cling. At the end there in verse uh, 8, I cling to you. Now, that is the same word, for those of you that know your Bible, uh, that's used in Genesis chapter 2 when it talks about a man would leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. And the two would become one. It's, uh, it, 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 it describes like a marriage. And in a marriage, there's intense feelings of passion, but there's also a lifelong commitment. These things are intertwined. And when a couple falls in love, there, there's always strong feelings. But, but a marriage built on feelings alone will not survive. There has to be commitment. The commitment is what protects the marriage, even though the feelings may come or go. Anyone who is married for any length of time knows that the feelings sometimes come and go. That's no shock. If you've not been married, you may think, oh, marriage is going to be great because we're going to be in love forever. And that's just not true. Because commitment is what makes it last for forever. So at the end of your life, 50, 60 years later of marriage or whatever, you can say we were the love of each other's lives. But if we could go back and take little snapshots in there, we might see some pretty low moments. We might see some points where we didn't really like each other very much. But the commitment has everything to do with the success of the relationship. It protects the marriage. Now, David had this passionate love for God. But we see here in verse 8 that he also had a commitment to God. I cling to you. I don't care how bad things may get. You may find yourself in a very difficult situation. And some of us are maybe right now. Some of us will be. It's going to happen. The, the, the trouble times come. Right? When, uh, a friend of mine and I, I have a saying, uh, enjoy today because tomorrow's going to be worse. <laughs> it happens. Things go wrong. Things get difficult. And, and all of these good and, and fuzzy feelings you may have right now uh, in, in, your, in your time with God may one day disappear. Are you going to cling? I can't imagine David having such joyful feelings in this fleeing from Jerusalem that he was going through. Not only did he have to flee because of a coup, but it was his own son. He had, to, he had to deal with that. And in the midst of those moments, David there, through the watches of the night, he came to some conclusions 
I'm not going to leave. I'm not going to quit. Every person that wants to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that wants to be a Christian, has to make those choices. There has to be not just one time, but pretty regular times where you remind yourself and you restate your commitment to your God. Now, if you've never made that commitment, talk to me afterwards because I'd love to help you because it is, it is better than a dinner at Ruth's Chris. And I mean that. If you're here and, and this is all new to you, come and, come and ask me. If you're not comfortable with me, talk to my wife. She's a lot nicer. If you're not comfortable with us, talk to anyone in here that looks like they've been around for a while. They'll help you. They'll share with you, and, and you can learn what it means to make that commitment. But I'm going to tell you that that commitment is not just a one-time thing. You make it on a regular basis. It just keeps coming back up. So we got to cling. Now let's look at verse 9 through 11, because this is what happens after you decide that. Once you make your mind up that this is what I'm going to do, here's what happens. Those who want to kill me will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by him, by, by, by God, will glorify in him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now, this is going to be tricky, but you might read that and go, okay. So David is now saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to stick with you, God. So now I'm going to be king again. I'm going to you know, get back in control. And there, there may be some faith like that in there. But really, if you really look at the words closely, David's not guaranteeing that he's going to come back. This isn't a guarantee that he's going to be made king one day. All he's saying is that people who are opposing God will be dealt with. So whether David was king or not, he made the decision that he would cling to God. That wasn't going to change. And there was no guarantee at this point in his life that he would become king again. But what he did know is that those who were unrighteous, God would deal with eventually. Whether they dealt with them in his life at that time or whether they were going to be dealt with later, it would happen. And those who swear by God will always give God glory. Whether David was talking about himself, that I'll be restored to the throne or not, really doesn't matter because David's view wasn't about me getting back on the throne. Think about it for a minute, guys. In order for David to have wanted this to happen, it would mean that he would want his son to be destroyed. Would any father want that? David had to just at some point say, God, I'm going to cling to you. You're my meal ticket. I'm hitching my wagon to you come hell or high water. Whatever may come, whatever may be, I'm with you. And I know that in the long run, eventually it's all going to be figured out. That God, you're going to get it all solved out. And, and, and people who are liars are going to be silenced. People who are, are usurpers that want to kill me are going to be destroyed. It's all going to play out in the wash. But David didn't take an active role in that. He didn't want to be the guy to put his own son to death. A little bit of the story back to Absalom. When Absalom entered the city, David fled from, Absalom did a number of things that were pretty heinous. In, in, in other words, he really broke all bridges with his dad, David. He moved into the castle. He slept with some of David's concubines. It was a very uh, uh, overt act saying, I want nothing to do with you. I'm burning all the bridges. When, when, it, when David was hiding out, his soldiers came to him and said, look, we need to attack. And, uh, and David said, okay, well, I'm going to lead the charge. They said, no, we don't want you because this is dangerous stuff. We need to protect you. 
And David's one request was to be gentle with his son. That was the only thing he asked his soldiers to do. Please be gentle with Absalom. Even though Absalom had burned every bridge, David was not the guy that wanted to exact revenge on Absalom. He asked for mercy. As a father, I understand that. There's just something about your, your, your love for your kids that you never want to do harm to them. You don't want to see any harm come to them. Even when they are doing as wrong as the day is long, even when they're as wrong as the day is long, you don't want to do anything harmful to them. And David, that was his only request. It didn't turn out that way. Absalom was eventually killed in battle. And, and, and afterwards, David was so sad that he began to mourn that the soldiers, even though they had a victory and David was restored, they felt like it was a loss because his mourning was so, so strong. To the point to where one of the commanders came to David and said, you've got to stop doing that because you're discouraging the morale of the army. And, and David had to, had to come out of mourning and, 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 you know, be king again and get everybody back on the same page, which he did. My point is this, David wasn't asking for himself to be avenged. He was just asking for God to do what God does. Uphold the righteous and lay low the wicked. And David left that, that all up to God. He knew God would judge fairly and the wicked would not prevail. So he committed it to the Lord and he acted accordingly. That's how I want to be. Whatever goes on in the world around me, I want to be one who commits my way to the Lord and acts accordingly. It's not easy to do. It's easier said than done. But I think, I think the secret is in time well spent and being gracious. If I can just be those two things, I think that I can act accordingly. And I think the same is for you. I want to encourage you. I want you to think about this. Spend time with God. Carve it out early, earnestly. Make the time. Morning, noon, night. It doesn't really matter. Just make the time. And while you're there, be grateful. Think about what God has done for you. The ways he's worked in your life. Reflect on past victories, past glories, past successes, past interventions of God in your life. Let the gratitude come to the surface. And it's there, regardless of what's going on around you, that you and I will be able to commit things to God and act accordingly. So I have a challenge. Here's my one challenge. In church history, uh, Psalm 63 is one of the more favored songs in, 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 in the church's history. In the first few hundred years of the early Christian church, Psalm 63 was sung in the morning. Because of that phrase, early I seek you. They rendered it that way, and so it became the habit of the early church in their morning devotional to sing Psalm 63. Now, I don't know the tune. Uh, maybe we could get someone to write the tune for us and we'll sing it, Anthony. But, uh, <laughs> oh, we have one right there, Stream in the Desert. Oh, there you go. 
So we have it in our songbook. Maybe we'll figure out how to sing it and we'll, we'll practice it. But what I want you to do is I want you, I'm going to challenge you and myself every day this week, between now till the next Saturday, to read Psalm 63 in the morning. Just take the minute and read it. And maybe you could reflect on the things we talked about and the, the background story of David and Absalom and all that. But the point is, is let's start our day earnestly, early with God. So that's the challenge that I want to leave you with. When I uh, started out today, I said to you, I asked you a question. In a word, what would you, how would you describe society, right? My word is amoral. The word amoral means uh, without a standard, basically. <laughs> and that's how I feel about the world around us. There's some good people out there, but there's, there's no clear standard anymore. It seems like there was a time that there was a general standard of what was right and wrong, and now that just seems to be thrown totally out the window. And I struggle with that. I like knowing right from wrong, and I don't like feeling like I'm the minority now, that, that, that my view of right and wrong is, is the one that everybody's attacking and saying is wrong because there is no right and wrong. Psalm 63 tells me what I can do, how I can be a moral person, how I can uh, think and act accordingly. David is such a great example to me. He's a, he's a drink of water in a very dry land. That's what his words are to me. I hope they're that to you. Let's take the time this week and let's, let's focus on Psalm 63 in our morning time with God and let it be uh, something that helps us draw close to him, be grateful, and renew our relationship, our friendship with him. At this time, we're going to take communion.